You're listening to a sermon from Free City Church in Lawrence, Kansas. We exist to extend the glory of God by making disciples through the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are reading out of Mark chapter 14, verses 26 through 42. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, Even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly, I tell you, this is this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, If I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that, if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Good evening. Uh, my name is Casey. I'm one of the pastors uh, here at Free City. And um, if you're with us for the first time, you're coming as we are at the back, uh, the very, very back part of Mark. And so we've got a handful of weeks left. And if you've been with us for, for the majority of the time, uh, we've covered a large sections, and now we're slowing way, way down as we get to the passion of Christ, which passion me- means suffering. And so, I mean, we're at the place where we want to slow way, way down to look at all that's happening. And we come to a familiar passage where we see Jesus walking in to be betrayed. And we see a different, like we see a human side of Jesus. And so like, you know, there's actually a lot of literature being written right now about the, the human side of Jesus, and not to take away from his divinity, but how Jesus suffered and how we can relate to him. And so I'm going to ask a question, and it's going like, to hit like five or six of you in the room, and the rest of it, it'll miss you. If you weren't born in the 1900s, it's totally going to miss you. But if you were born in the 1900s, uh, this is going to hit you. I just want to ask this question, how do you feel? about the end of Star Wars, The Empire Strikes Back. Like, how do you feel about that? Like, if you remember, like, Luke, he, he's fighting Darth Vader. He's in his khaki pajamas, uh, which are not near as cool as when the Jedi comes back and he's black-on-black pajamas. But he's fighting Darth Vader. He finds out, Dar- if, you, if you haven't seen this movie, this is a spoiler alert, He finds out that Darth Vader is his dad, brings up all kinds of daddy issues. His dad cuts off his hand, which doesn't help any daddy issues at all. He finds himself hanging on the bottom of an antenna of Cloud City, crying for his sister to come save him. And that's how the movie ends. 
Like when the first time I, I saw that, and that's how it just ended, I thought, I think I'm down with the dark side, you know? I, I, I don't know if I want to see like the hope of the universe crying out for his sister to come save him. And let me just put it all on the record. Like if my hand had just cut, been cut off and my dad had just done it and I just found out that he was also my mortal enemy, like I too would cry out for my sister to come save me. But like it's this moment where you see like this weakness and if you've seen the movies over and over, you know that Luke is about to go to like Jedi school, like graduate level Jedi school. He's gonna come back as like a bad man pajama ready to cause a ruckus. Like, you know he's going to come back. But if you haven't seen it yet, you're just like, this is it? Where where is the hope? Are we going to put our hope in this hero? You know, when, when you read about this and you see Jesus in a garden, uncertain, you know, the other accounts tell that he was moved to the point of bleeding blood as he sweat, extreme anxiety, begging the Father, is there another way to do what's before us? Is there any other way? How do you feel about that? See, see, the chances are you actually probably feel pretty good. Like our culture actually embraces that side. Like we get to see Jesus, like the human side of him, look at the circumstances and say, I need help. I have doubt. I don't know what to do. And what happens in us, in our culture, is we look at that and we're like, man, I feel like if Jesus can relate to me in struggle, I feel like I can go to him. I can actually tell him what my life is like. But it hasn't always been that way. You know, like, if, if you were first century Christians, like, you would get to this part of the story, and it actually would be hard for you to tell this part of the story, because, you know, it would be hard because they never thought of their heroes as struggling. They thought of their heroes as people who always had the answer, and we actually need to be honest, like, most of the time, Jesus always had the answer. Like, last couple of weeks, we're coming off the donkey where he just looks at the disciples and says, listen, you're going to find a donkey, take the donkey. If people try to stop you from taking the donkey, tell them it's cool, God wants it, trust me, and they'll let you do it. And it worked. And then they come in and they're looking for a place for, for, to have the Lord's Supper. And the same thing happens to, for, to have the Passover. He says, listen, you'll find a guy, he'll be carrying this giant, you know, water jar, just follow him, say, where's our room, and it'll work. Jesus is in control. Jesus is walking toward the cross, and all of a sudden, all alone, he falters. You know, most historians will look at this, and they say, this is actually really strong validation that this is true, that this isn't made up, because if the disciples were making something up, they would never write anything like this. Like, and really, I mean, you even look at this, like, if we could ask this question, why is it that we have, like, so many martyrs of the early church, and they actually seem to do a better job of facing their death than Jesus? And the answer might be, maybe Jesus was facing something more than what they were seeing. When, when we look at this, like, I want to ask, like, to pause. And if this hits you in a promising way, like if it's helpful for you to see Jesus suffer like this, is it helpful to see him engage doubt, to feel abandoned and alone? And I just want to ask this, do you ever feel alone? 
in a room with people around, do you ever feel like no one understands what I'm going through? Do you ever feel a hollowness in you where you're like, man, if anyone heard this story, they still would look at me. I would still feel alone. And so when we look at this, I want to look at, at four things. And they're all around Jesus being alone. And so I want to look at first Jesus being abandoned and alone. And then I want to look at suffering. He faces suffering all alone. And then I want to look at the temptation that was before him while he was alone. And then we want to end with this. He was obedient when he was alone. And so let me pray for us and let's get started. Uh, Father, Lord, I pray that you would actually bring to mind if there's areas in our life that we just feel misunderstood or we feel alone. Oh Lord, I, I ask that you would bring to mind if there's people in our lives that we're afraid that they might feel uh, alone. And Lord, I pray that what we see in Jesus, the strong son of God who left the courts of heaven to come and to be a sacrifice in our place. Lord Jesus, I pray that we would find hope. I pray that we would find hope when we see what he committed himself to that he sought, he clearly knew what he was stepping into, and he chose to do it even when all eyes weren't watching. Thank you, Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen. So look at verse 26. The first thing that we're just going to see is Jesus, abandoned and alone. Like he knew exactly what was about to happen. And he knew what we know and what our kids know is that when we face things that are scary, they're scarier when, when you're alone. Like, it's probably almost every week one of our kids winds up in our bedroom in the middle of the night, kind of just breathing over you. And when you wake up and there's a kid's face right in front of you and they say, I was scared because I was alone. And what they're doing is they're actually coming to take mom with them. Like, they're coming to try to take mom away. And so they come and I'm like, hey, listen, we need to stop. You're not actually alone. Like, I know you have two sisters in your room because we have three sisters in that room and you have a pet snake named Aloe in the room and they'll say, but they're not in my bed. And I'm like, I don't care. Put the snake in your bed. It's fine. And so they may not actually be alone, but they feel alone. And it's a moment of like, the only comfort that I can get is if mom is in bed with me, but I'm like, I want mom in bed with me. And so we're having this fight. I don't want to be alone. But like, scary things are far more scary when you feel like you're alone. And so look at this, verse 26. And so this is coming at the end of the Passover. It says, and, they had sung, and, and when they had sung a hymn, they went to the Mount of Olives. And so just stop there for a second. Like what happened was we remember we went through the Passover and we talked about the four cups or the four toasts. That would be moments when you would stop to explain what the Passover is all about. And then Jesus, he, he follows the script until he gets to the third cup, which the third cup is about where you explain the elements. And he explains them differently. He establishes what we do in communion where he says, this is my body broken for you. This is my blood spilt for you. He changes everything and he says, I want you to observe this in the same way that you observe the Passover. When you do this, I want you to think about me. 
And then he gets to the final cup and he says, I won't drink of the vine until I have entered in. And that final cup was the cup of relationship, the cup of renewed relationship, a promise that God would renew a relationship. And so in essence, he was saying, I'm not going to stop until I have paved the way, until I have bought back a new relationship of God with you. And then what would happen is they would sing like a Psalms 118, a hymn together, and that's how you would end. And that's exactly where we are. And so they sang this hymn together, and they start to walk out. And so look in verse 27. It says, And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. And so like just seeing Jesus, still knowing exactly what he's walking into, he looks at his disciples, certainly the, the 12 were still there. Maybe more disciples were there, but we know the 12 were there. And he looks at him and says, every one of you will abandon me. I will be all alone. Jesus knows what it's like to feel all alone. He says, all of you abandoned. But then look at the invitation. He says, but after I'm raised up, the end of verse 28 says, I will go before you to Galilee. And so he says, remember where I met you the very first time. That's where he called the disciples. Remember how we met. I will be there waiting for you. I will take you back. Even after you abandon me, I will take you back. But when the shepherd is striked, the sheep will be scattered. And he was quoting Zechariah 13, 7 to say, this has to happen. Verse 29. It says, Peter said to him, and so Peter stood up and he says, even though they all fall away, I will not. And so this is classic Peter. And sometimes it is so great and sometimes it is so uh, predictable. But he stands up and he says, I believe some of these chumps will fall away. I have a list of the ones that will fall away first, but I will not fall away. And then Jesus says, truly, I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And then I love this. And they all said the same. I mean, in that moment, you're like, yeah, we're with him. You know, I mean, they all said, yeah, yeah, that sounds good. We're with him. We won't fall away. But we know the moment's coming that they all run. And so just to even kind of look at who's about to be here, like we're about to see this group get smaller, that the 12 are somewhere in the garden, but then for a stone's throw away, we have Peter, James and John. We have the uh, what we called the uh, the Prius crew, the group that always got in, like Jesus' best friends who were all right there. And let's look at what happened. But the first thing, like Jesus knew he would be abandoned. You know, it's even worth saying, like if you, if you back up and look at verse 19. So look up in, in, at the top of that text in verse 19. Jesus has already said, hey, listen, one of you will betray me. And they all looked inside and they all got this sorrowful sadness and they all said, is it me? Like they didn't start to deny it of like, I think it's probably Judas. They all looked inside and they saw something inside of them that might cause them to falter. And then what do we do when we see something broken inside of us? We want to strengthen something else. And so we see this rapid movement from, is it me, Lord? Could I do that? Will I walk away for, to this moment of like, I'll die for you. 
And so he knew that he would be abandoned. He knew that they would all run. He knew that he would face this suffering all alone. He knew it. And he still led the disciples to the garden, but he did more than that. He reminded that after they faltered, after they came to their senses, that he would meet them and take them back again. You know, is it, is it any wonder, like, when you read through Acts, like, over and over, you see the apostles, like, as soon as things kind of start to struggle in on them, they go back to their testimony. They just go back to, man, this is what I was doing. I was persecuting the church, and then I was on the way to Damascus to persecute the church more, and all of a sudden this bright light stood before me, and I was like, hey, what's going on? And I was blind for a while, and then Ananias came, and he'll, they just go back to their testimony. This is how God met me. And when I think about, like, man, what am I doing, or what's going on in my life? Like, going back to this place where I was my freshman year in college, I think I was already a believer, but I was wasn't doing very good as a believer. I go back to this place where like I was sitting on the top bunk. I was laying there and I just looked at God and I said, God, I don't think you're anywhere near here, but you know where I am. And if you want me, come get me. And the next night at this illegal fraternity party, I come across a Christian who starts to share his testimony. And man, just falling apart right there. I just start to say, man, I said, God, if you want me, come get me. And you shouldn't be here. And here you are. And he ended up discipling me all the way through our freshman year. So if there's ever a moment of getting proud, I remember that all I did, like Luke on the, <laughs> on the bottom of Cloud City crying out for his sister, I just cried out to God. And I just said, God, if you want me, come find me. But first, Jesus, abandoned and alone. Second point, Jesus, suffering and alone. Like Jesus wouldn't find uh, himself alone. Jesus would find himself alone and suffering intensely. Like look at this. Uh, if you look at verse 32, it says, And they went to the place God kept sending me. And he said to his disciples, sit here a while while I pray. And he took with him Peter, James, and John. And so the disciples, the twelve, are out here. But then he takes three of them closer. And he took them, Peter, James, and John. And he began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to the point of death. Remain here and watch. And so, like, we see him suffering, and we see him separated, and, like, I just want to ask, what happens to you when you start to suffer? Like, when we start to suffer, people react, like, kind of predictably, but sometimes differently. Like, at first, when we start to suffer, a lot of times we want to try to hide. Like, we want to pull in. We want to see if it's something that we can control. And then when we see that it's not something we can control, we start to get desperate, and we start to blame people for not being there. You know, when Kenzie and I were first married... Um, we, uh, there was a, a flu bug that was going, a tummy bug that was going through and like everybody was getting sick and puking, like everybody. And I was talking to one of our youth interns, I was doing student ministry and I said these really damning words. I said, I can't even remember the last time I threw up. Like it, like at the moment I said that, it's like, oh, can I bring those words back? But I just said, I can't even remember the last time I threw up. And within like two hours, I started to feel different. Like I started to feel not okay and suddenly I realized I think I'm getting sick and so I packed my stuff up and I raced home and I ran inside our house and I made it to the bathroom just in time to throw up on the wall 
And so Kinsey was actually right there. And so, I mean, I just, like, I hugged the toilet. I missed the toilet. And she's like, well, I'm glad you're home. And so she, stu- she goes into, like, mothering mode. And this is a complicated situation because I kind of want to be left alone. I don't really want to be mothered. But then I actually do want to be mothered. And so, like, I can't be helped either way. And so she starts to kind of, like, hover over me, like, can I help you? And I'm like, hey, I don't have long hair, so you can't hold my hair. Just, just go to the basketball. It was senior night. Just go. And so she leaves, and man, I just kept getting sick, and I kept going sick, and then I thought, man, how dare she leave me alone to die by myself? And so I told you it was complicated. Like, I didn't want her to, like, make a big deal about me, but then she left, and I felt like I can't believe she left me. When suffering hits, all of a sudden we get turned really inside and we start to think, man, I can't believe they didn't do this right or I can't believe they did nothing even if I asked them to do nothing. And all of a sudden we become very, very aware of how other people are treating us and we see Jesus alone. And, and he actually leaves them. But look, look at the descriptions. Look at verse 33. And so it says this. It says Jesus, in, we could say, it, he begins to be astonished by what he sees before him. And, and so look at the word. It says, and beginning to be greatly distressed and, and troubled. Like that, 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 that phrase, greatly distressed, it comes from one Greek word. It actually means astonished. And so Jesus, all of a sudden, something starts to surprise him. Something starts to stand out. Something starts to scare him. Something starts to overwhelm him. He sees something and he begins to get overwhelmed. But then it goes on and describes him as being horrified. And so where it says in verse 34, it says, My soul is very sorrowful even to death. Like the Greek word there, it means to be horrified. Like it means to see something and it has an effect on you. Like it's a troubling effect that kind of locks your feet and you don't know what to do. Like it's the moment, like if you turned a corner, you were just walking down the street and you turned and you saw something awful before you and you realize it was someone that you knew and that you loved and it's that shocked moment where you don't know what to do. You're trapped. Something that Jesus saw troubled him. It horrified him. It made a physical response. It steals courage and fortitude and it leaves him stuck questioning what to do. See, what Jesus saw overwhelmed him with fear and it froze him. In his tracks, he stumbled. He struggled to know what to do next. I just want to ask about those two things. Have you ever felt overwhelmed? Like suddenly the relationships in your life that are supposed to be dependable, like they feel heavy and it feels like they're asleep, which is what we're going to see in just a moment, which he's like felt overwhelmed. Or have you ever been astonished by what you're facing and you start to ask questions, but you don't know what to do. You don't know if you act. You don't know if you be still. Like you're just stuck. Like there's a body response because you just start to think, man, if I try to help it, it's going to get worse. Or if I walk away, it's going to get worse. I just don't know what to do. Like Jesus experienced something in the garden by himself that astonished him. It started this process. It says, begin to be greatly distressed. It began to astonish him. It began to overwhelm him to the point that he was horrified. This is Jesus. Jesus has seen something that's thrown him into a fearful, life-disdaining frenzy 
to the point that he says, to the point of death. How do you think about Jesus alone, questioning what to do next, crying out? And we're told exactly what he saw. But the first thing, Jesus abandoned alone. The second thing, Jesus suffering and alone. The third thing, Jesus tempted and alone. Look at verse 35. In verse 35, it says, And going a little further, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not my will, but your will. And so we're answered, like, what did Jesus see that shocked him, that put him in great distress or made him sorrowful even to the point of death? What astonished him or horrified him? It answers right here. He asked for this cup to be removed. And let me just describe this cup to you. So in the Old Testament, there's places where they talk about the cup. And it's described like this in Ezekiel 23, verse 33. It says, and you drink it. You will be filled with drunkenness and sorrow, a cup of horror and desolation, the cup of your sister Samaria. You shall drink it and drain it out and gnaw at its shards and tear at your breast. And what it's describing is the cup of God's wrath that's being stored because of the sin of humanity. And it's saying like there is a cup out there that God's wrath is growing. And Jesus looks into the cup And it astonishes him. It makes him think, what will I do next? It makes him not want to move. It makes him look at God the Father and say, I know this was the plan, but all things are possible. There's got to be another way to do it. We also get descriptions at the end of the Bible. In Revelation 14, starting in verse 10, it says, He also will drink the wine of God's wrath, the cup poured full strength into the cup of his anger. He will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of their holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever and they have no rest day or night. Jesus looked into that. Now I want to ask, what do you think about a God who has a cup of wrath? It, 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 it's fallen on hard times in our culture. Like we like to think of, of, of the God who loves. We like to think of God who forgives, but we don't like to think of a God who is angry or a God who wants to do something about sin. And I just want to say this, like how we think about that is absolutely ridiculous because there is no way that you can love something. There's no way that you can love somebody and not engage yourself in anger when something or somebody that you love is threatened or hurt. There's no way. To to love something, to love somebody, is to enter into anger if it's ever abused or mistreated, even if it's the person. Like, even if the person you love is hurting themselves, it makes you angry. Like, you're like, you have to stop that. And what happens is anger is alerting you to a danger of a love to bring you to defend the love. And so if you love something, you will get angry. If you love nothing, you will never be angry. For Jesus to love us, for God to love us, he has to be angry when what he loves is threatened. I mean, think about this, like 
Think about a dad if he saw his kids being hurt or abused or mistreated or all kinds of other horrible things, and all he had to do was say, hey, babe, you know I love you. And he doesn't do anything to stop it. There's no wrath that's vindicated to stop what's going on. He just has like platitudes of, you know I love you. That wouldn't be loving at all. And so we have to wrestle with this, that this is what's described in the Old Testament. This is what's described in the New Testament. And this is what's described right here that Jesus looked into, and he saw the cup, and it began to astonish him. It began to horrify him. He started to question, God, I know we planned this from the beginning, but all things are possible for you. Is there another way? Remove this cup. And so just to even identify what Jesus saw in the cup of God's holy hot wrath for the destruction of everything good, Jesus saw the wrath of God held for our sins before him, and it astonished him. It locked him into fear, and he struggled to move in any direction. Jesus prayed for another way, a way to avoid the cup. And after praying, he went to find some help from his friends. And what did he find? Look at verse 37. He found that he was even more alone. And he came and found them sleeping. He said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? And so th- th- this is Peter, James and John. This is Peter who just said, hey, I'll die for you. I'll always be there. I'll never leave you. This is also James and John who, if we back up uh, just a couple chapters to chapter 10, they said, hey, when you come into your kingdom, we want to be on your left and your right. And he looks at him and he says, hey, can you have the baptism that I have? And they said, you bet we can. And he says, well, you might get that baptism, but I don't know. These are the people who have promised allegiance. We'll always be there. And when Jesus' time of need, he looks for help, and he finds them asleep. Now, I know you might be thinking, well, it's late, you know, maybe it was dark, and they were just asleep. What's the big deal? Have you ever found yourself in a desperate situation, and it feels like all the loved ones around you who said they would be there are ambivalent to what it is? They feel like they're asleep to your reality. How did you feel? Like in that moment where you're struggling, but you look at your family or your friends who are supposed to be there, and it's like they don't even see what's happening. How did you feel when you turned to them in a paralyzing moment and they just weren't there? Look at what Jesus does in verse 38. He says, he pleads with them, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation And then look what he says. He gives him the benefit of the doubt. He says, the spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Like in that moment, he doesn't just lash out and say, man, you guys are worthless. I told you you would all abandon me. You can't even stay up for a couple hours. What's wrong with you? I'm sweating blood over here. I'm trying to figure out if I'm going to redeem your souls. You're not making a great case for me right now. He doesn't do any of that. Like he just looks at him and he says, I know you want to. I know your intentions are good. I mean, you faltered and you failed and you weren't there, but I know you want to. Like just, this isn't, this is, this is free. This isn't even a part of this sermon. Like what would we be like if we actually did that for one another? Like if we actually looked at people and we always looked for, man, I think you were actually trying to do the best you could. 
Like we actually looked for a good motive there. We assumed a good motive until it was proven otherwise. And so then all the hours that we spent time telling them off in our head because we assumed the worst in them, that was all wasted time. Like what would that be like? Jesus faces the cup of God, his wrath alone. And when he turns to his best friends for help, he finds them asleep. Jesus, abandoned and alone. Jesus, suffering and alone. Jesus, tempted and alone. Look at verse 39. It says, and again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they didn't know what to answer him. And he came a third time and he said to them, are you still sleeping and taking your rest? Is it enough? The hour has come. The son of man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. See, my betrayer is at hand. This scene plays out three times and every time Jesus goes back, he feels more and more lonely. He finds them asleep. He wakes them up, encourages them, be with me. And he finds them asleep. And he finds them asleep. And he finds them asleep. The hurt of someone not being there for you in a time of need is crushing. What happens when it's time after time after time? At the end of this scene, after Jesus prayed three times in agony and doubt, he walks out committed to the Father's will. He prayed, yet not my will, but your will. And I, I think it's actually really important that we see this. I, I think a lot of times we struggle with the idea of, man, I don't know if God really loves me. And we, we say over and over, man, look at the cross, look at the cross, look at the cross. And I actually think this is really, really powerful. Not just look at the cross, look at before the cross. See, when when Jesus was all alone, no eyes were on him. Nobody was watching him. Nobody could have said, like, man, let's see if he chickens out. Let's see what he does. When he was all alone and he turned to the Father for help, he didn't see the Father. What he saw was a chasm that opened up before him where he saw the wrath of God that would be poured out. When nobody was looking, he saw what he was going to have to do. If there was ever a time that he could have said, no, not today, and just slipped out into the night, it was then. If there was ever a time that he was going to walk away when nobody else was watching, no peer pressure to keep him there, nobody watching, just him, and he looks to the Father, and he doesn't see the loving Father, but he sees the wrath of God that's waiting for him. The wrath of God that was going to make him feel shame that he had never felt. It was going to make him feel vulnerable like he had never felt. It's going to make him feel all the sins that we could list, that we've committed or committed outside. He was going to bear them. All in one moment, he was going to become a liar and a betrayer. He was going to become a pornographer. He was to become someone who abuses and abandons all at once. That was going to not just fall upon him the wrath. He was going to feel the guilt of those things. And it says, he began to be greatly troubled. It astonished him and he was frozen and he chose when no eyes were on him, he chose and he committed to the Father's will, not my will, but your will.
think there's something else worth saying. Look at what Jesus does. Jesus doesn't come and he doesn't like act like he has a different desire. He doesn't come and say, man, I don't really want something different. He comes and he expresses, God, this is what I want. He doesn't just then go change circumstances. He brings, this is what I want. And then he says, but not my will, but your will. And so he doesn't get dispassionate. He doesn't act like it's not something that he wants. He embraces and brings it and he names it. This is what I want. And then he surrendered because he looked at the Father and he says, but you're worthy of trust. This is what I want, but I will trust you. Jesus suffered the magnitude of hell and he could have slipped away in the night when nobody was watching. When no one was watching, he committed himself to pay the cost of reconnecting us back to God. And do you know what this means? Do you know what this means about you? Like if you ever doubt, man, does God even love me? Or if you ever doubt, like am I all alone? Like you might seemingly feel alone, but because Jesus was purposely pushed out when he looked to the Father, all he saw was the wrath of God. He was completely alone, so you never have to be alone. Look at me, you never have to be alone. When nobody is watching, God showed Jesus exactly what was coming, and he made a choice that you were worth it. And then he walked through all that we're about to walk through. Jesus didn't get caught up in the pits of hell, and we were just a byproduct of that. No, the Father showed him the pits of hell, and he struggled in temptation alone when nobody was watching. And then he chose to take the wrath of God in our place to write our names down in the reservations of heaven. If you're a Christian, when you struggle in fear alone, you're only seemingly alone. You're never really alone. Jesus struggled all alone. He looked to God the Father for help, and God showed him a burning cup of his white-hot wrath. And this is what we play out every week. When we look at communion, you see, Christian, when nobody was looking, he could have walked away, but Jesus offered his body to be crushed for our sin. And he tells us to remember that often. He says, this is the body. This is my body, the body of Jesus broken for you. When no one was looking, when he could have walked away, Jesus offered his blood and it was poured out for our sins. Christian, this is the blood of Jesus poured out for your life. Let me pray for us. Um, Lord, even when I say, man, you're never alone, you're only seemingly alone. Lord, I don't want that to fall on ambivalent ears. Lord, I know um, that all across the room, there are people who feel very alone in a struggle. And Lord, that the scriptures would lead us to tell you about that aloneness, to bring it to you, but it also tells us to tell one another about where we feel alone. 
where something feels heavy and overwhelming, where I find myself like my feet are stuck in concrete. I don't know what to do. I don't know which way to go. And, and the great promise, and this is a promise I've actually been coming to a lot, we have this promise in Ephesians 5, like in verse 14, where it says, anything in darkness, when it's exposed to light, becomes visible, and that which is visible becomes light itself. And so the, the, the picture is this, that because the Holy Spirit now indwells in you, you are never alone, but sometimes we feel alone because we just isolate, and we isolate, and we don't go anywhere with it, and we act like we've got it under control. And as long as we're hiding it, we think we have it under control. Will you be honest? Do you feel alone? That's where it starts. Talking to God about it and talking to God's people. And so just real fast, heads down, eyes closed. If you're going to say to me, just, Casey, I do feel alone. And I just want you to pray for me. Just look up and make eye contact with me. Anyone else? Okay. Yeah. All of God's promises find their yes in Jesus. Because Jesus, when he was alone, he looked at what was stored up of God's wrath. And he looked at you and he looked at your aloneness. And he said, I will take the wrath of God so that you can be reconnected with God the Father for all of eternity. This is the gospel. Lord Jesus, help us believe. Help us find community. Lord, give us courage to invite people and let's have grace for them when they don't fully understand or they don't fully get it. But let's also have some humility that maybe they see something we don't. God, we need help. In Jesus' name, amen.